You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. We're in Matthew chapter 4, and the context here is we're at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. He's been tempted by Satan. We studied that two weeks ago. And now he's ready to begin his ministry. And what we see is, you know, I just want to remind you that when we're reading about a gospel, we're reading about the biography of our maker. We're reading about God. John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We're looking at the purest form, the most direct opportunity that we can have to understand the nature and the character of God. Literally, if he was in our shoes, how would he live? And that's part of what's amazing about the four Gospels is you're learning about the nature and character of God and what he would do, how he would respond to all kinds of situations that we find ourselves in. It's a beautiful opportunity to really learn about our our creator. So we go to Matthew and we start in chapter 4, verse 12. And it says, now when Jesus heard that John, meaning John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali. And if you're not a Bible trivia whiz, you're just like, blah, 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 place I don't know to another place I don't know. But the understanding the geography is actually really helpful and, and just helping you to understand that this is rooted in history. These are real places uh, that we have access today. I remember when I was in seminary, I took a class on biblical geography, and I was just horrified at how boring it was. My friend Mark Johnson and I used to go down to the park near Otterbein, and there was an amphitheater, and we would read aloud to each other theatrically from our atlases in order to try to just muscle through having to read this geographical data. And then I went to Israel, and it was a whole other story. You go and you see the Jordan River. You go and you see the Temple Mount. You go and you connect these things, and then you learn some of the geography. And when you read a passage like this, it draws you in because you have an understanding of what's being talked about. So just to give you a quick little tour of Israel, this is Israel as it stands in the time of Jesus. It is a tiny, tiny, tiny place. It's 150 miles long. That's like from here to Cleveland. And it's 50 miles wide. It is a very small patch of land, but it's strategically placed at this time as one of the major thoroughfares of the whole world between Europe and Africa. An incredible oasis right there connected by the Sinai, to the Sinai Desert. And if you were going to head down into Africa, this is the way you had to do it. It was divided up into different plots, different ways at different times throughout history. When it talks about Zebulon and Naphtali, it's talking about the tribal allotments from the Old Testament where each of the 12 tribes was given an area of the promised land. 
Uh, but in the time of Jesus, it was primarily divided this way. In the south was Judah, where there was Jerusalem. And the north was Galilee, where the, where the Sea of Galilee is, where Capernaum is. And in between was Samaria, which were the blood oath enemies of the Jewish people. And so it could be broken down that way, where most of what you're reading about in the Gospels takes place either in Judah or Galilee, except, of course, for when Jesus goes to Sychar and, and talks to the Samaritan woman. Again, getting a sense for the geography, Nazareth was in the north. It was in Galilee. It was just west of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was actually on the Sea of Galilee. And the desert temptation that we read about in chapter 4 Scholars think that took place down near the Dead Sea, closer to Jerusalem. So there you have just sort of a, a rough outline of what the author's talking about. Jesus was in Nazareth, and he went to Capernaum because he felt vulnerable. John had been captured, and it was like time to start his public ministry. Nazareth is a little poduck town. Capernaum was a little more metropolitan, and I mean a little. It was a fishing village, but it was a 20-mile walk from Nazareth to Capernaum. And by ancient standards, a 20-mile walk is a day's walk. When you walk everywhere all the time, a 20-mile walk is just how you get from one place to another. So Jesus travels to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And in our imaginations, we wonder about what is the Sea of Galilee? And the answer is, it's a medium-sized lake. Okay, the Sea of Galilee, I mean, it's beautiful, amazing. I mean, this is a picture of the Sea of Galilee today. But my point is, is you can see to the other side very easily. This is not even like a great lake-sized lake. This Sea of Galilee is just a medium-sized lake uh, where a lot of people uh, made their living as fishermen. Uh, and it's a beautiful place. Capernaum was on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, prosperous fishing village. Today, the Sea of Galilee is commonly referred to in Israel as the Lake of Gennesaret because they're like, sea, what? this isn't a sea, it's a lake. Uh, it was Jesus's, Capernaum was Jesus's northern base of operations. It's where Peter, Andrew, James, and John were born and worked. And so he, they had family there, they had connections there. And it was, uh, it was a it was a booming fishing village as opposed to Nazareth, which was a poduck in the middle of nowhere, uh, the butt of many jokes from the Israeli people. So he's headed there. We read in Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is supposed to draw our attention to remembering the teachings of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was saying, repent for the kingdom of God is, is coming right? And we talked about what this means. Repent is this churchy word. It just means to change your mind, to change your mind about whether or not you think you need God in your life, whether it's enough to just be born into a, a spiritual household, to go to church when you're little, or to live a moral life, or do you actually need to know God? John was like, you actually need to know God. And Jesus was like, God is actually here. He's connecting the message of the importance of what God is doing. John was prepared the way, and he was to prepare the way for Jesus. So we get to Matthew 4.18, 
and we get Matthew's version of the call of the disciples. And he writes, now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Not a lot of drama there. Not a lot of detail. Matthew has a way of being brief. Uh, but Luke actually brings us much more into the story. And you can tell the difference. People say, well, why are there different Gospels? Well, they emphasize different things. Matthew apparently didn't care much about this because he didn't tell us much about it. Jesus showed up, said, hey, you fishermen, follow me. And they said, okay. And Jesus had four disciples. The Luke account is a little more in depth. He says, now it happened while the crowd was pressing around Jesus and listening to him teach the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put a little way out a little way from land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Jesus is like, thanks for letting me use your boat. Let me repay you by getting some fish. And Simon answers and says, Master, we've worked hard all night and we've caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish so that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement has seized him and all of his companions because of the catch of fish which they had been taken. And so also were James, John, sons of Zebedee. Zebedee just means sons of thunder, kind of a, a nickname that those two guys had. The sons of thunder, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, from now on you'll be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. So you can see, you know, in some areas, Matthew is more detailed on certain things. Some areas, Luke, some areas... Uh, John, some areas, Mark. And we see Luke doesn't contradict anything that, Ma the, uh, that Matthew said, but he gives us a little bit more material to work with in terms of understanding what was going on and the nature and the character of the situation. And what's happening here is Jesus is deciding to engage and call disciples and that's a weird term that we don't normally use. It's an old Latin term. In the Greek, this word was mathetes. And the best way to think about what discipleship is or what mathetes is, is the word teacher was rabbi in the ancient world and in the Hebrew. So Jesus was a rabbi, and he was looking for students or mathetes. If you followed a rabbi, you were his disciples. It has a weird religious connotation or maybe for some people biker gang connotation, but like it just means a student. Rabbis had students. Teachers had disciples. That was the way that Judaism was spread and taught and the way that rabbis uh, gained notoriety was by 
having students who were willing to follow them. So mathetes is just learner or pupil. And this is important because we look at the way that Jesus accomplished his work. Jesus has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He's come to bring sight to the blind, and he's come to reconcile people back into a relationship with God. That's his mission. That's his point. And then he calls all of us to partake in that mission. And if we study Jesus' methodology, what we see is discipleship is the primary thing that he devoted most of his time to on earth. Spending time equipping, teaching, and preparing his students to carry on the work after he was crucified, rose again, and ascended. God loves to work through people, and he wants to work through you and me. So Jesus' way of spreading his message was, of course, his public teaching message. We see that he would give sermons. We have the Sermon on the Mount. We have these talks. But those are not the major emphasis. This was sort of an opportunity to spread the truth, to get the message out there, but also to titillate people who might be very interested in taking it seriously and becoming students of his. He was trying to gather a following. He would do healing and miracles and acts of service, but the thing that the, the purpose that those things really served was to prove his authority that his teaching was actually real and from God. Because if you're like, what gives you the right to say, turn the other cheek? He's like, because I can make the blind see and I can raise the dead. And God does these things through me that only God could do because he wants you to know that what I'm saying is true. In-depth personal training of a group of teachable men and women was Jesus' number one strategy for reaching the world, for changing the world, one person at a time. That's what he did. And Peter and James and John and Andrew were the first that he called. So that's an interesting topic there, discipleship. What did Jesus look for in a disciple? Was he looking for well-educated, influential politicians, uh, lawyers, powerful, wealthy people, people who were highly esteemed? What about moral people? And the answer is no, 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 and no. That was not, these were not the criterion, the criterion that you and I might use to start a movement and change the world was not at all the criteria that Jesus used. In fact, we see God say in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at the appearance or the height or stature because I have rejected, talking about Saul, for God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What Jesus is looking for is men and women who have heart, who are inclined toward God, who are teachable, who understand they have problems, and who are willing to have faith. And those people don't always stand out in a crowd. And so this was what Jesus was doing. When we look at Simon Peter and we look at Luke's account of it, we actually see some of these qualities. 
Peter, if you study his interactions throughout the New Testament, he's a bold, brash man. He is frequently saying crazy things and putting his foot in his mouth, but he just wears his heart on his sleeve. He's out there, he's aggressive, and he makes a lot of mistakes. That's just his character. That's just his nature. He's a fisherman by trade. Probably his father was a fisherman at the sea, on the Sea of Galilee. Probably his father's father was a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. These guys had generations of depth in doing one thing, catching fish and bringing them to market. But we also see some things that are interesting. Not afraid to speak his mind. Not afraid to dissent and disagree. Notice Jesus says, let's go back out. They were coming in from fishing all night. They'd caught nothing. And Jesus says, let's go back out and try again. And what is Peter's initial response? Now remember, he, he has been listening to this teaching. He is a rabbi. He has been healing people. He has been doing miracles. And he's like, let's go catch some fish. And Peter's like, man, really? You know, I've been fishing this lake my entire life. I know all the holes. I know all the tricks. And I've been out all night trying to do this, and I haven't caught nothing. You are a carpenter and a rabbi, and you're going to tell me how to fish? That's the essence or the spirit of the attitude that, that Peter has here. He's not afraid to ask questions and to make his opinions known. And I think that's something that God looks for. I think he, he doesn't want blind faith. You know, if you really study the life of Christ, the character of Christ, he is not offended or put off by people who push back. In fact, he seems to love those people. Now, he often defeats them in arguments and in conversations, but he does it in a way that is compelling and makes them love him even more. He's not a control freak. He's not insecure. He's not like, how dare you? Question me. Now you can't have the fish. That's not at all what he does. Peter pushes back. And it reminds me a lot of this Proverbs. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And it will be a healing to your body and a refreshment to your bones. What he's saying here is trust God. It's good to reason. It's good to understand. It's good to have knowledge. But when you're encountering God, when you're connecting with him, understand that his ways are the best. Even when your personal expertise might tell you otherwise. And it's okay to wrestle with God. It's okay to want more information. It's okay to ask questions. But if you really want to experience what it is to live a blessed life, then at the end of the day, your answer to God needs to be yes. Not because he'll punish you or because he'll tear you down, but if Peter had just said, uh-uh, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm going home to my wife, he would have missed something amazing. Something amazing. What we see, a common trait we see in all the disciples is that they're teachable and they're willing to try. They mess up their, their, their screw-ups, and they're constantly fighting about the wrong things and, get, and answering the questions wrong and causing more grief 
And Jesus just patiently loves them and leads them, and they do just enough. They just follow him with all the mess and all the warts and all. They follow him, and their answer to him is yes. And that's what Peter does here. He says, okay, I've been out all night, professor fisherman, Sea of Galilee, didn't catch anything, rabbi, carpenter, but maybe God. So we'll row back out there, we'll get out all our stuff, and we'll throw the nets in. Another thing that I think is remarkable about Peter, and I think it's part of what is being described here when it says God is looking at the heart. You know, David was known as a man after God's own heart. What, would, what quality would make God want to invest in Peter? To bring him into his family, to eat, drink, sleep, take their meals together and live together 24-7 for at least three years. What kind of person would God be looking for who would be helping to lead his effort to change the world? And the answer is somebody who understands that they have problems. Somebody who knows that they're messed up. You know, Peter is reluctant to go. They throw in these nets and what they pull out was like, a number of fish that no one had ever caught ever anywhere. It says in, that it was threatening to sink the boat. One net thrown out and, and could barely, they had to call their partners over to help them get the net into the boat. And once they got it into the boat, it's sinking. This net was filled with fish. And you would think a lifelong fisherman would be like, let's do it again. We're going to make bank. What an incredible opportunity to take advantage of Jesus as some kind of fishing guru. Or maybe he's God doing miracles, and wouldn't it be great? You know what's better than a boat full of fish? Two boats full of fish. But Peter the fisherman, who's been out all night fishing and caught nothing, sees this great, incredible miracle, and his first response is, get away from me. I am not worthy. I have problems. I am a bad person. You don't want to be around me. The more you get to know me, Jesus, the more flaws you're going to see. And let's just take this moment, this miraculous moment, this great thing that happened, and let's go our separate ways before I screw it up by saying something dumb. We're doing something that offends you or that hurts you, Get away from me. I am not safe, Peter says. What an amazing thing to have that sort of sense of, I just met God, and I don't want, I don't want to smear him with my shenanigans and my problems and my faults. Of course, this is something that Jesus would have loved to have hear, heard from someone that he was calling to be his disciple. It means that he's ready to learn. He's ready to under. He truly understands. You know, John the Baptist's ministry was about telling people that it's not good enough to be a good person. It's not good enough to be born a descendant of Abraham. You have to understand the first step to a relationship with God is to admit that you need God. To admit that you need to be saved. You need a Savior you cannot do it on your own. You are messing things up. 
You are hurting people, you are hurting yourself, and you are not going to grow from a self-help book. You are desperately broken. That's what God wants us to realize, is that we were made to be connected with him, and when we're not, we make a mess out of everything. And Peter's like, don't be near me, I make a mess out of everything. Jesus was asked once by the self-righteous Pharisees who were always going around pretending like they didn't have any problems and like they were righteous men and they were far above everyone else. They said, how is it that you spend your time with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners? How can a godly man spend so much time with the dregs of society? And Jesus said in Luke 5, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's so filled with the character and the nature of God. We think of God as the grumpy old man in the sky who just wants to point his finger at us and judge us. But God is the friend who draws near and says, I see that you're suffering. I see that the way that you're living your life is leaving you empty and heartbroken and defeated and hard-hearted. And I want you to come home. I want to heal you. I want to love you. I want to give you a good work to do. And I want to fill your life with purpose. But before that can happen, there is one condition. You have to understand that you're a sinful person and you don't deserve it. And right out of the box, Peter is right there. Right where God wants him to be. Notice Jesus' response to Peter. It's quite interesting. Does he say, oh, Peter, come on, you're not that bad. I'm God. I know all things. I know what's in your heart. Don't tell me go away. You're a sinful man. You're not that sinful. No, he doesn't do that. He said, don't be so hard on yourself. Where's your self-esteem? Nope. He doesn't do any of that. Because he knows what Peter said is true. Peter is a sinful man, and he, Jesus should flee from him. But that's not what he says. What he says is, don't be afraid. Think about that. Someone whose life, whatever it is that Peter did, whatever it was that he had going on, we have no idea. But his life is so tumultuous, so chaotic, and he's such a broken man. He meets God. He sees a miracle. And his first response is, I can't be near you. And God's first response is, don't be afraid. I know all about you. And I've chosen you anyway. I know everything. I know things about you in your heart that you're not even able to look at. But you don't need to be afraid of me. You need to follow me because we have work to do. We have work. And I'm going to use you, Peter, the sinful man, to be a fisher of men. Another thing that we see common to Peter and common to anyone who would be a disciple of Christ is just quite simply, he's willing to answer the call. Which should not be lost on us, the difficulty of this situation, the weight of what we're seeing. 
He's just brought in the best catch, not only of his life, but of in the history of the Sea of Galilee, no one has ever brought in such a valuable haul of fish as this. And the picture that we're left with by Luke at the end of the story is the fishermen caught the most amount of fish that anyone has ever caught. And then all of a sudden there's empty boats and nets on the shore because they've given all of that up and they've decided to wholly follow Jesus Christ. They understood something very fundamental and very easy to understand but very difficult to do. Jesus was better than anything else. He was better than the fish. He was better than the fish story. He was better than going back to the pub that night and telling everybody the crazy story about what the rabbi had done or better than going to the market and selling all the fish. It says they brought their boats to the land and they left everything and followed him. And this is why we know who Peter is. This is why the world knows about Christianity. This is why. is because there were people that were willing, warts and all, with all their problems, all their fears, all their insecurities, all their flaws, they were willing to say yes, and God, if you want to use me, my answer is yes. I don't know how that looks. I don't know how that's going to turn out. It seems kind of crazy to me. Like if you really knew me, you wouldn't want to use me that way. But their answer was yes. John 10, 27 through 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them that they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Peter was one of Jesus' sheep. What gets into the head of a man where after hearing a couple teachings and seeing a miracle, he's willing to leave his livelihood and his home and his family and everything he knows and become a, a disciple of a rabbi. He just knew by what he saw, he could tell the truth of it. And that is why a lot of us are here. A lot of us were dragged kicking and screaming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We tried a lot of other things. Some of us were successful at other things, but they left us empty with broken relationships, broken hearts, disappointment. Some of us lived very unhealthy, unrighteous lives. And some of us did a lot of harm and left a lot of people in our wake. And a lot of us were people that felt like, you know, if you ever said to me, you know, you're going to wind up going to church and, and, and doing ministry and being a disciple of something, we would have said, no way. No way. I'm not about that. Those people, those goody-two-shoe, fakey people, I don't want any part of that. And then God moved. He spoke. Whether it was through a person or through the Bible or through prayer, God moved in some way and we knew it was him. We knew he was talking. And we decided to become followers of him. Even though it comes with a lot of baggage and a lot of negative associations and a lot of people and a lot of time and a lot of energy, we knew God's voice, and we said yes. And that's our biggest hope for you here tonight, is that if you don't know God, that you will hear his voice. My voice, my words, of 
complete and utter non-importance. But my prayer and our prayer and our hope is that somehow through my saying yes to God and being willing to stand up in front of a bunch of people and talk about him, that you'll hear his voice. That there will be a connection that happens for you just like it's happened for so many of us and you'll know that God is calling you into a relationship with him through the person of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that I can do to convince you of that. There's no clever speech or sermon that I can say. There's no argument that I can make. I can only pray and hope that you will hear God's voice. And that when you do, you'll say yes. We jump back to Matthew, who just is summarizing this whole thing up. He says, Jesus was going throughout the Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. You can see, I mean, Luke really wants to talk about what's going on. And Matthew's like, Jesus walked around and he healed people and it was great. He wants to get on to talk about something else. But the news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all who were ill, those who were suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them all. Jesus was doing something that was demonstrating the love of God, the power of God, the heart of God. And he was also teaching his disciples about what it meant to have compassion. And it says, large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Everywhere people are coming. This guy teaches, he heals, he talks about God's love, and he says the kingdom of God is here. What does that mean? They heard the call and the voice of their creator drawing them into a relationship with him. And that's really the point I want to close on here is what is your response? How do you respond when Jesus says, from now on, come with me, You'll be fisher of of men. When you hear that voice, how will you respond to it? Are you willing to take a small step? I'm not saying change your whole life, dedicate your whole life, and you know, start uh, go be a missionary somewhere and start doing all the meetings and all the things. I'm just saying one small step. Are you willing to take a small chance? Are you willing to throw out your net? What did it really cost Peter if he threw out his net and it came back in? He'd be like, I'm going to bed, dude. There really wasn't that much risk in that one small step. Maybe for you it's just to come back, hear another teaching. Maybe it's talk with someone who's here and ask them, if you don't know God and you're here and this is all sounding strange to you, Pull someone aside after trivia and to say, so what convinced you? What evidence do you see that you find compelling? I need more data points. That's a great step. That's something awesome that you can do. You know what else you can do is you can pray. And you're like, well, I don't believe in God. It's like, okay, but it shouldn't stop you from praying. I got this challenge. I was uh, 16 years old. And someone challenged me and they said, well, if God is there, would you want to know him? And I was like, yeah, of course I'd want to know God if he's real, but what you're talking about is imaginary and in your head. And they said, then pray to him. And I was like, no problem. And I said, God, if you're there and I'm not sure that you are, 
Show me that I need you. Show me that you're real. Well, you can see how that prayer went. It took a couple years. It, wasn't, it was two more years until I became a Christian. But I, I challenge you, if you don't believe in God or you're not sure God is real, ask him to show you why you need him. Because that is a prayer that God will answer. That doesn't mean that you will answer the call. He may show you and you're like, nope, still not following you. But you will know in your heart that God is real and he answers prayer. It's a prayer that God will answer. He will show you your need for him if you ask him. He may show you even if you don't ask. But why not? Why not take that step? Keep coming, listening to Bible teachings. That can't hurt. The evidence is here. My voice is just a voice. It's not about my teaching or how I put it together, but we pray every day, and all of us are all the time praying that God will speak during these times that we come together. And it's his voice that you need to hear. Just spend some time starting to get to know people in a real way. There are really cool people here that have a lot to offer as a friend. And it's really nice to be connected with a community of people that really talk about real things and really care about each other. What's your response? Are you telling God to depart? Have you heard his voice? And just like Peter, you're saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful person. It's not uncommon at all for people to feel like, I think God is real and I think he wants a relationship with me, but I am too far gone. That's the whole, I can't go into a church thing because I'll get struck with lightning. That is a fundamental misunderstanding of who God is. Look at what you've looked tonight. You've watched God in the flesh move toward a sinful person who was like, you can't be around me. I'm too despicable and awful. And he's like, that's exactly my type of guy. Come with me. We're going to change the world. That's God's answer to people who feel that way. Come with me. We're going to change the world. Your despicableness will just show everyone in your life who knows how despicable you are how amazing I am when I fix you. I am glorified, God said, by using despicable things, changing people's lives. Are you offended by Christ's teaching? That just means you're understanding it. All that means is is that you got the message. You are broken and you are not good enough. And that is offensive, especially if you feel like you're a pretty good person and you try pretty hard to live a moral life. But the thing that you have to understand is that the standard is not other people and how they live. The standard is perfection. And if you're thinking you're in the running for perfection, then you have even bigger problems than we thought. The problem is not that you're so much more terrible than everyone else. It's that you don't understand how much damage and how much pain you're causing by your selfishness. And that the standard is not other people It's God. Maybe you're turned off by the Bible. Seems like a bunch of ancient stories not really relevant to me today. There's a lot of things I think in there that are judgmental. I've met a lot of Christians who I don't like very much. I definitely don't like the ones I see on TV. And I definitely don't like the ones who knock on my door. We've all been there. And these are the things that make all of us trepidatious 
about calling ourselves Christians. This is what makes people like us sit around and be like, mm, maybe I'm not a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe I'm not an evangelical, maybe I'm just a biblical person. Because it's, it's terrifying. It's terrifying the way that God has been mis misrepresented by so many people in our culture who claim to be speaking for him. But they don't sound like him, they don't look like him, and they certainly don't live like him. Maybe you're angry about the church and politics. Me too. So angry. You know, the, the bottom line with politics is this, is that you cannot save the world system by the world system. And I don't care if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat. You cannot fix this. It is desperately broken. And that doesn't mean that politics doesn't matter. There are things that can be accomplished in comforts and, and services and things, and we can argue about those things, and we can have differing opinions about those things. All of that tension and all of that argument and all of that stuff, though, is not going to do one thing to change eternity. None of it is going to matter when God rolls up the sky like a scroll and says, it is finished. And when we trust in those kinds of vehicles of men, and we look to them for salvation, what we end up with is hate for our fellow man. Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter in the face of eternity. And there are many people here on all sides of the political spectrum, and praise God for it. Because we can argue and have different ideas about how to accomplish God's will, but we know that there's something much more important and much more valuable and much more useful that can actually change the world, and it is not politics. Praise God that there is something that can unite us and bring us together, and that thing is the love of God. We have to remember that. Are you asking him to draw near? Are you willing to take that step? If not, why not? And talk about those things. Talk about why, what is holding you back? Peter said, I've been out all night. I'm kind of tired. Not really wanting to do this. Those were his barriers in that situation. What are yours? Share them with us. Share them with others. Wrestle with it. Work through it. And try taking some small steps. Cast your net. See what happens. Some of us have already made those decisions and we've asked Jesus into our lives and we've realized that we're broken people, but we're sort of like, I'm not exactly leaving my boat and following Jesus with everything I've got either. Well, some of us need to take big steps. Discipleship's a big part of what we do here. To get discipled just means to meet with somebody and study the Bible with them. Usually somebody who's a little further down the road, but that doesn't even matter. If they're not, just get together so that you can study as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another, and spend time wondering about the mysteries of the universe. And get deep and talk about deep things and help each other learn. You may be ready to disciple someone else to start teaching them what you have learned. All that is required is that you know something that someone else doesn't know. You can literally be one step ahead of them. And what's exciting about it is when you start doing that, you get motivated to stay one step ahead of them. So you find yourself studying more because you don't want to disappoint 
the person that you're studying with. Take classes. You know, the, the carousel of classes that comes up here every week before the teaching starts about all the different things, all the different ways, all the different people who have mastery of knowledge and wisdom in the Scriptures who are willing to share it with you. Get engaged. Get involved. Share your faith with your neighbors. Serve them. Connect with them. Take the risk that comes with being rejected and having someone be like, you're a what? Take the risk. Serve in your community or lead a home church. These things are all worth it. And they're hard. All of those things are hard. All of those things are huge commitments of time and energy. But where else is it going to go? Netflix? What else are you going to do with your life? Matthew finishes. He says, large crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judah, and beyond the Jordan. People heard the voice of Jesus and they followed him because they wanted more. They were hungry to understand more. I think Paul put it in excellent fashion, and we'll close with 2 Timothy 2.2. He says, The things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the best definition of discipleship there is. That's Jesus' method for changing the world. That's how so many of us have been impacted and our lives have been changed. And that's the opportunity that we have to change the lives of others. And there you have the second half of Matthew 4. God, it's good to be together and it's good to be getting into your word and it's good to be thinking about things that matter. It's good to be thinking about how you've put people in our lives and how you've worked through people to change our lives and it's good to be thinking and wondering about what might be next, who, whose life you might want to put us into where we could help them and love them and, and learn from them still about how to grow and how to be a, a kind of person that, that pleases you. Just pray that you'll be with us tonight as we uh, spend time together playing and having fun. And thank you that you came into our lives and gave us this sweet community. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.